Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I'm Lydia Jordan. And I'm Sarah Shaw, and we're excited to be back kind of in the middle of our November run, but I, it's the end of November, unfortunately. We both got kind of sick and had to take yeah. like a couple weeks off. <laughs> Sorry, guys. We had like the best of intentions, and then this cold <laughs> season was like, absolutely not. Like, you are going to get ruined. Yeah. So. <laughs> it wrecked us, but here, we're here we are. So we're a little residually sick, so we're not drinking today. But um, I would recommend, I don't know if it's just because where I am right now is quite cloudy and rainy. Honestly, I would recommend a hot toddy. Like if you were, to I was gonna say imbibe. the same thing. If you were to imbibe for this episode, a hot toddy sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. I am drinking tea, so we can just pretend. <laughs> I love that. Um, but let's jump into it. We are discussing one of the most famous movies probably ever made, um, and definitely one of the most um, well-known film noirs today. Chinatown, a very interesting film. Pretty pretty complex in terms of what it's trying to accomplish and accomplishes it pretty well. It is a pretty confusing movie in terms of what's going on and I think something for me, because I have seen this before, but I I did a little bit of research before I watched this and I think um, what's going to be important in this episode is I think if we discuss kind of like the um, social stuff that's going on in California at the time it'll help understand the movie a little bit better. So I think if you don't know about the water wars or or anything like that that happened in California in the 20th century, it's good to ju- it's not like a lot of information if you don't want it to be, but it is good to just have a background of like what that is because it really helps understand the movie a lot better, I think personally. So we'll we'll kind of go into that. Otherwise, you're going to be like, why is this movie about irrigation? Because <laughs> you're like so <laughs> yeah, you're bored. Like, What's happening? It's- what is going on? <laughs> Um, yeah, you're like, do so, you love water? How interested yeah. in water are you? The politics of water. <laughs> you spend, like, a significant portion of the middle of the movie at an aqueduct, and it's like, why are we here? But then when you get it, you're like, oh, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think this is a really, really interesting plot line. Um, I think with, with noirs, like film noirs, um, we often see these kind of convoluted and confusing plot lines. I think this is a really great one because I love, too, what you're talking about. And I'm excited to hear more about the history because it does speak to what was happening in L.A. Um, at the time. And also kind of, you know, back in history, kind of looking back on um, how L.A. came to be and kind of everything that had to happen politically for it to be able to get the resources that it needed. Um which is fascinating. And I think that this film to me sums up really great. Like, I just think the plot line is really, it's one of those ones that's confusing and there's a lot happening, but it does have conclusion, which is great. It does. (laughs) And I think once you figure it out, like once you figure out what's going on and it may seem that like, okay, this kind of water war thing doesn't really make sense with actually like what the point of the plot is and how it concludes and like what the actual interesting part of the story is but it actually does all tie in together which is really interesting and I think nothing is um I don't think any like film device or plot line is really wasted here I think everything is utilized really well in this movie and it's really interesting and I think this is one of not one of the only movies but it is it is a movie that is very clearly in so many different ways that I think we're going to talk about a product of its time. And I think it's a, it's one of the ones that it's actually really important to kind of understand what's going on historically, socially, politically in the U.S. and in California and in Hollywood 
at this time because they all kind of play into how this movie was made and and why why it is the way it is so let's jump into it I'm really excited to talk about this one so Chinatown is a 1974 American neo-noir film directed by Roman Polanski we don't support Roman Polanski at all however this movie hate him (laughs) he did make some good movies back in the day um and this is unfortunately one of them so Roman Polanski wrote, uh, directed this movie. It was written uh, by Robert Thorne, excuse me, Robert Town, and starring Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, and John Huston. Um, it's inspired, as, as we were talking about, uh, by the California Water Wars, which I'll kind of jump into a little bit before we get into the plot, a, a little background on that. And it's frequently listed as one of the greatest films of all time. It was nominated for 11 Oscars with Robert Town winning Best Original Screenplay. It was actually the first screenplay that he wrote in full by himself. He was pretty well known as like a, a script doctor for Hollywood's kind of like new Hollywood era. He worked, um, he consulted on, I think, Bonnie and Clyde and The Godfather prior to this. So he's pretty well known, but this is like his first kind of like original work. Um, it won Golden Globes for Best Drama, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay as well, and it, the American Film Institute placed it second on its list of top ten mystery films, Vertigo being number one. <laughs> yeah. But does classic. it deserve to be number one? I don't know. No. okay. I digress. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, we, if you want to hear our opinions on Vertigo, please feel free to listen to that please episode. Listen to that episode. <laughs> um, so this movie was pretty successful at the box office and with critics. It earned twenty nine point two million at the box office on a budget of six million. So it did pretty well. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, it it didn't have a ton of um, negative reception. It was it was pretty popular. I think, especially with audiences at the time, were pretty hungry for this like nihilistic existential type of cinema, which was kind of emerging at this time. So. Um, just like it's Roman Polanski considers it his greatest work and so does many critic many a critic um so before we jump into the plot let's discuss the water wars just like really briefly so the California water wars if you're not familiar I think people that kind of lived through it especially in California are very familiar with it it was pretty it's a pretty like culturally significant thing in terms of uh Los Angeles history if that's something people are interested in like us um, so the Water Wars was a series of political conflicts between the city of Los Angeles and farmers and ranchers in Owens Valley, which is Eastern California, over the water rights. It started actually in the late nineteen hundred, uh, the late nineteenth century, um, so the late eighteen hundreds, when the then mayor of uh Los Angeles decided that he wanted to take water from Owens Valley to support Los Angeles because it began outgrowing its water supply. So the population of LA kind of had a huge growth spurt really quickly and that area of California is pretty pretty dry and so Owens Valley at the time was really really um well irrigated and had a lot of water and was like a pretty like burgeoning ranch and farmland area so there was a lot of vegetation a lot of um like animals and and things like that living out there uh, so Owens Valley was, like I said, mostly farmland, required a lot of water that it had for farmers, um, for their crops and, and things like that. Uh, so Los Angeles ended up winning the rights to build an aqueduct from Owens Valley to Los Angeles, and it began diverting water from Owens Valley to LA, which led to the eventual kind of beginning of the ruin of the valley. So 
this, like, this, the water wars is something that started in the late 19th century. It's actually still happening. Like, it kind of doesn't really have an end. And this is why people are, the the drought of California is, like, it's been going on. This thing has been going on for over 100 years. But by the late uh, 20s, the late 1920s, Los Angeles actually owned 90% of the water of Owens Valley. Um, and then by the, and it was, it, there was a lot of political corruption and kind of, like, backdoor dealing that led to Los Angeles kind of owning all of this water and being able to build um, aqueducts from Owens Valley to Los Angeles to kind of divert this water and it just like kind of slowly started ruining the valley because all of this vegetation started dying because there was just there's no water there anymore yeah (laughs) yeah so by the late 1970s it was still going on and it was um LA decided that they wanted to actually build a second aqueduct to pump more ground and surface water into LA from Owens Valley. And it was doing it at the time that was, I think the rate was around like several hundred thousand acre feet per year. So it's like, it was like, it was like, that's like several, I think, cubic feet per second. It was pumping water out of Owens Valley and essentially caused like all of the vegetation in the valley to die. And so all of these farmers and ranchers basically like, like lost all of their business um and had to move out of the area so this is still going on today there isn't really like a conclusion for it los angeles was eventually like reprimanded for not filing appropriate um, environmental reports it's been litigated a lot um there have been negotiations and like deals tried to, to be made to like prevent any future issues but they still pump water from owens valley it's actually leading to the slow desertification of Owens Valley. So this used to be, like, a pretty pretty well-vegetated area. Now it's completely, like, desert. So And that's over the course of only 100 years, which is pretty rapid. So that kind of gives you, yeah, a little bit of a background of um, the Water Wars of California, which is the kind of underlying, like, political plot of this film, basically. So we're in, like, the second Water Wars in the 1970s, like, when this film is going on. Right. So this is looking back oh, yeah, to, yes. like, the 20s, right? Correct. This, this movie is in the set in the 30s, but it was something that would have still been relevant when it was made, the film was made. Um, so let's kind of, like, jump into the plot and talk about talk about it. Bear with us a little bit. This is a little bit of a convoluted one, so... It's a very convoluted <laughs> plot. And it has, like, one of the best twists, I think, um, in film... yeah I think one of the best and definitely one of the darkest if not like the darkest in um at least at least in film noir such an iconic line when we get there I'm sure you'll say it but it was one that I think even if you haven't seen this film you'll recognize the line from this film but obviously spoiler alert if you don't want to know the end go watch the movie, but um, we're definitely going to talk about it because it's wild. It is wild, and there's a couple of famous lines in this movie, that being one of them, and then the actual final line of the movie is pretty... I think people have probably heard it. It's referenced all the time, so um, let's let's jump in. So um, the film starts in 1937. A woman identifying herself as Evelyn Mulray hires private investigator Jake Giddis to trail her husband Hollis, who she suspects of infidelity. Hollis Mulray is a chief engineer at the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, and Giddis uh, hears him publicly refuse to build a new dam on safety grounds. Later, Giddis photographs Mulray in the company of a young woman, and the pictures make their way into the next day's paper. 
Back at his office, Giddis is confronted by the real Evelyn Mulray, played by Faye Dunaway, um, who threatens to sue him for, for the photos, basically. Uh, Giddis concludes that the fake Evelyn was using him to discredit Hollis Mulray. Um, he goes to a reservoir to research for clues, but instead finds uh, his old police associate, Lieutenant Lou Escobar. Mulray's body has been found in the reservoir, having apparently drowned. Now working for Evelyn, the real Evelyn, uh, Giddis investigates Mulray's death as a homicide. He discovers that although there is supposedly a drought, huge quantities of water are being released from the reservoir every night. Uh, Giddis is warned off by the Water Department Security Chief Claude um, Mulvahill and uh, his henchman who slashes Giddis's left nostril. So if you've seen any image of this movie with Jack Nicholson having like a bandage over his nose, that's why. why. (laughs) Um, And it's like a pretty significant portion of the movie in which he has said bandage over his nose. Yeah, it um, was funny because I watched this with Steve and he's like, wait, what? did he get a nose job? I was like, no. <laughs> like he got slashed, <laughs> with a, slashed with like a, a different kind of nose job, I guess. <laughs> yes. Um, not one that he consented to. Uh, at his office, uh, Giddis receives a call from Ida Sessions, who identifies herself as the fake Mrs. Mulray. She refuses to disclose the name of the man who hired her, but tells Giddis to check that day's obituaries. Giddis learns that Mulray was uh, once the business partner of Evelyn's wealthy father, Noah Cross, played by John Huston, very, very creepily. He's, like, the Ugh, grossest so villain. lecherous. Yeah, God, he's, so, like, it, definition of lecherous. <laughs> um, over lunch at Cross's club, Cross offers to double Giddis' fee if he'll search for Mulray's missing mistress. At the Hall of Records, Giddis discovers uh, much of the Northwest Valley has recently changed ownership. He visits an orange grove in the valley, but is attacked by an angry landowner by angry landowners who believe him to be an agent of the water department, which they claim is sabotaging the water supply to force them out. Giddis deduces that the water department is uh, drying up the land so that it can be bought cheaply and that Mulray was murdered when he uncovered the plan. He also discovers that some of the property in the valley was seemingly purchased by a recently deceased retirement home resident. Giddis and Evelyn bluff their way into the retirement home and confirm the other real estate deals um, were transacted in the names of unknown residents. Their visit is interrupted by the suspicious director who has called Mulville. Um, after escaping Mulville and his thugs, Giddis and Evelyn hide in Evelyn's house and they sleep together. During the night, Evelyn receives a phone call and must leave suddenly. She warns Giddis that her father is dangerous. Giddis follows Evelyn's car to the house to a house where she sees, excuse me, where he sees Evelyn confronting Mulray's mistress. So he uh, he accuses Evelyn of holding the woman hostage, but she claims that the woman is actually her sister Catherine. The next day, an anonymous call draw, draws Giddis to Ida Sessions' apartment where he finds her body. Lieutenant Escobar is waiting there, and he says that the coroner found salt water in Mulray's lungs, indicating that he did not actually drown in the freshwater reservoir. Escobar suspects Evelyn murdered him to, and tells Giddis to produce her quickly. At the Mulray mansion, Giddis finds Evelyn gone and the servants packing up the house. He discovers the garden pond is saltwater and spots a pair of eyeglasses in it. 
He confronts Evelyn about Catherine, who she now claims is her daughter. Get us then. I don't. Do you want to do the line? He slaps her a bunch repeatedly until, and she keeps going back and forth saying, She's my sister. She's my daughter. She's my sister. My daughter. daughter. Yeah. (laughs) She's my daughter. Um, and breaks down revealing eventually that Catherine is, in fact, both her sister and her daughter. And further revealing that Noah Cross, her father, raped her when she was 15 years old, causing her to run away to Mexico to have the baby. So, yeah, big, big, big reveal here. Um, And I think imagine at this time, this is like a pretty shocking. I mean, it's still shocking, but we, you know, like we've seen worse in movies and TV. This is like pretty shocking for this time coming kind of at the end. Of I was going to say coming at the end of the Hayes Code, the too, Hayes where things Code. were so heavily censored. I mean, I think there might have been some films where this was like incest was potentially alluded to but this is the first time i think where we're seeing it like explicitly addressed so. explicitly addressed and explained too it's and really explained. interesting yeah and she i does think go into detail about everything yes and i think it's really this reveal is really interesting and i i um the line is iconic where she says my sister my daughter my sister my daughter over and over again and it's it's like it's such an amazing reveal because you're watching it and you're you're seeing this whole thing through his perspective so you're like just as confused until you're like yeah. oh shit like you oh, realize shit. what's going on yeah um so she also in this whole like you know breakdown and reveal she says that the eyeglasses are not mole rays because he didn't wear bifocals and Giddis arranges for the women so he's now like believes her and is gonna help so he arranges for the women to flee back to Me- Mexico and instructs Evelyn to meet him at her butler's home in Chinatown he summons Cross to the Mulray home to settle their deal. Cross admits his intention to incorporate the Northwest Valley into the city of Los Angeles and irrigate and develop it. So not only is he super scummy politically, but he's also just like a scummy human being. He's yeah, just, he's, he's the worst. And yeah, he's, he's just, just he's super greedy. Like I think that at this point too, um, he's like, why, like, aren't you worth like tens of millions of dollars? Like, what more do you want? You know, like, why are you doing this and like ruining people's lives and livelihoods so that you can get more when you already have so much? Um, exactly. Exactly. Um, Giddis confirms that the bifocals are actually crosses and he accuses cross of murdering mole, right? Cross has Moleville take the bifocals from Guinness at gunpoint, and then Guinness has, uh, is forced to drive them to Chinatown where Evelyn is waiting. The police are already there and uh, when Guinness arrives and they detain him. When Cross approaches Catherine, identifying himself as her grandfather, Evelyn shoots him in the arm and starts to drive away with Catherine, but the police open fire, very brutally killing Evelyn. <laughs> And they show the whole thing, and it's like pretty. It's pretty aggressive. It's pretty graphic. It's, it's pretty like it's pretty reminiscent of how she dies in Body and Clyde as well. Like it's yeah, no, that's yeah, actually very true. Very similar vibes. Um, so uh, Cross then clutches the hysterical Catherine and leads her away, while Escobar orders Giddis to be released. One of Giddis's associates leads him away from the scene, telling him, "Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown." So that's how the movie ends. We'll talk about the ending because it is obviously like many film noir, very like very much the climax very amb- of the film. Ambiguous and yeah, it's it's a very unsettling ending. Like I do think that you get you understand what's happening. I think they do a good job kind of wrapping up the plot, but they do leave it in a place that I think you as a viewer feel very uncomfortable, which is 
pretty consistent with film noirs, but um, pretty consistent. But this is on a on another like seedier level in that I mean, just something to keep in mind as we talk about this through the analysis. Um, the movie ends with obviously Evelyn dying. Noah Cross, the villain, does not die, and in fact, he gets away with Catherine. But we'll talk about that. We'll talk about like a little bit about what it means that. Geddes didn't go after them and why and all that stuff so and the the kind of meaning of Chinatown and all that stuff so um let's kind of jump in to the analysis a little bit I want to talk about a few different things but I think a big theme for this movie and and kind of one of the reasons it's so important to understand what's going on at this time in history and in Hollywood and, you know, nationally and within, you know, California and American society is is the theme of corruption. I mean, that's like the main kind of the main big theme of the film. So this, like I said, this movie was so much about what was going on at the time. So to understand that, and like we talk about this a lot, um, with with our studio system stuff, but we've never really talked about films and the importance of films that kind of started kind of the decline of the studio system. So this movie is one of the films that marks the end of the studio system era. I mean, I think it was more in the, the late 60s that was like the true decline, but this is kind of one of the, you know, one of the ones that is like, yeah, nail in the coffin kind of thing. So um, the end of the studio system era meant, like, the end of the Hayes Code and, and all of that stuff and, and ushered in this new era called New Hollywood. That's what it was called at the time. Roman Polanski, Jack Nicholson were basically at the forefront of that as well. I mean, I think Bonnie and Clyde was one of the first films that kind of, you know, started the end of, um, end of the uh, studio system era. So... Understanding what was kind of happening in Hollywood is really important to kind of like understanding. It's part of what's important in understanding like why this movie is so nihilistic, I think, and I think why it attracted an audience like in the mid 70s. Um, the main theme of like corruption and kind of the dishonesty of authority figures is so much mirroring what's happening both in Hollywood and nationally at this at this time. So in Hollywood the kind of breakdown of the studio system is like a huge the the big thing about that was directors kind of taking their movies into their own hands and like breaking free of all of these kind of corrupt pro- produ- producers and and studio heads basically that 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 um we were seeing i mean so much of the golden age of hollywood was you know really seedy on the on the kind of underside of it and and it's run by these like these studio heads had almost political power. I mean, they were so powerful and um, so they corrupt. Did, and, and everyone was on their payroll. I mean, basically the entire Los Angeles Police Department was there to do their bidding. There's all of this, like, backdoor stuff happening. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> yeah, really wild. And so I think it's important to kind of, like, understand that in terms of why this movie was made in, ter- in like, a film history aspect, and I think what the director and writers were personally trying to, like, convey with, um, within, like, what's, ha- like, what's happening in, in the, in film history at the time. Also, um, another thing to remember is, like, nationally what's happening is, um, the country doesn't trust the government at this time. This is, like, coming right off the tail of Watergate, where, you know, the executive branch was very, very kind of, like, blatantly well-known at this time for being very untrustworthy and very corrupt. 
Um, and yeah, so this is kind of like this movie, like many other film noir, is representing this like seedy underbelly of society, but what it's doing as well is kind of representing this kind of seedy underbelly of like the glamour of film of like previous film noir. Like the the previous film noirs were also products of the studio system. And while they were representing this like seedy underbelly of American society post World War Two, they were still made as like products of this like really corrupt system. And so this is kind of both like critiquing that but also paying homage to it in a really interesting way I don't know if you would agree with that but that's kind of yeah sure I mean I think it's just it's so fascinating we see this happening quite a lot I think in um in films is just this critique of these older systems you know within like the last 50 years within Hollywood I just think it's always so interesting to see how they how they critique these systems through the lens of film itself um I just yeah I just find it fascinating I don't know what I'm trying to say I'm like are not articulating this well at all <laughs> no I totally agree though too and I mean I think it's super fascinating on like a personal level for Roman Polanski and that he made this movie and I don't think had this what I'm about to say hadn't happened to him I don't think this movie would have been as nihilistic as it is but this is coming four years after the um Tate LaBianca murders as well which obviously people would know he was married to Sharon Tate who was a victim of um one of the Manson one of the most you know Mm -hmm. crazy Manson murders and (laughs) yeah and that trial was four years prior to this and so I think had he not have have gone through that I don't think this movie would have been as um as dark as it actually went to so I think that adds just yet another layer on top of it of like all of these huge cultural moments happening in the 70s within the country politically so socially and also in Hollywood all kind of coming into play and like how this movie and like the themes of this movie are being portrayed and being made which is it's super interesting it's like a weird recipe like a random weird recipe for this like perfect like creepy movie like it's it's really weird but it's great and I think it's kind of perfectly, like, expressed. I mean, there the motifs of, like, corruption and, like, flaws and, you know, um, disillusion and all this stuff are all over this movie. But I think it's perfectly expressed in a scene when Giddes tells uh, Evelyn that when he was a police officer in Chinatown, he tried to do as little as possible because everything was so corrupt and foreign that he couldn't tell if he was doing it, well, like, if he did anything, if it was actually doing any good. And I think that it's, that makes, you know, like, I think that not only it describes the kind of, like, nihilism of the film, but it also makes him, it expresses him as, like, this perfect, disillusioned, hard-boiled, like, film noir main character. Yeah. Well, I think it's so interesting, too, like, in addition to that, there doesn't seem to be any, like, free agency. Like, are you even making choices anymore? Because it, and I think that this speaks to also kind of the studio era that this is also kind of critiquing as well of, you know, you have these politicians and these studio heads who are kind of the puppet masters, everything that you're doing, um, even if you feel like it's like a free choice, isn't really, it's all part of kind of this bigger plan that you don't really have 
insight into um maybe you get glimpses of it but i feel like that kind of feudalism at the end in particular really speaks to this idea that you know even though you're making choices and trying to do the right thing within this corrupt system um yeah you don't have any individual agency it's all kind of this larger you know thing in motion where you don't have the ability to have free will or choice Correct, and I think we see that in a lot of film noirs from the the mid forties as well, and like, in in that these main, you know, uh, male lead characters that are so hard boiled when they uncover the big like corrupt kind of bigger picture of what's going on, it it's always something of like this hard boiled kind of private eye that accidentally falls into this like huge corrupt conspiracy, and when they actually uncover it and they realize that like there's nothing they can actually do about it. And, and, and that's kind of it. That's kind of the flaw of the whole thing is that they're, they are trying to be these like good people, but they can't be because the world around them is so corrupt. And I think he's kind of just explaining that and that like, instead of trying to do anything, I just didn't do anything at all because there was nothing I could do. And, um, and then we see kind of what happens when he does get involved and that like everything kind of goes to shit (laughs) for him. I mean, everything falls apart. And at the end of the day, too, like he, I think it leaves you feeling uncomfortable because, I mean, I think you know that the grandfather is going to do what he did to his daughter, to his granddaughter, right? Like, I think there's that piece of it that's super disgusting and disturbing. But then there's also this sense that even though he's uncovered, you know, this huge, um, you know, scam that everyone's essentially running, um, nothing is going to change because it's just his word against, you know, all of these really powerful people. And like, there's nothing that's going to happen. Like he's not going to be able to make a difference or do the right thing because nobody benefits from doing the right thing. (laughs) You know? Right. Exactly. No, exactly. And I think like to that point, like he wants to help, um, Evelyn and his daughter and her daughter, but, um, he, like him getting involved, like, doesn't help like it doesn't help like that's kind of the you know representation of that and like that she gets she dies in the end basically um and I and I think that kind of just leads into like a a discussion I want to have about her I think I think that she's a super fascinating character for a femme fatale and Faye Dunaway is is an amazing actress and plays her very very well I think she did a really good job with this role and I think it's probably one of the most um I think without the way that this character, her character develops and and is utilized in making the plot develop, this movie actually would have been a little bit more of a traditional film noir. I think it's actually through her character that makes it kind of more of a neo-noir in my eyes. And um, so, so first of all, Evelyn Mulray is like the most femme fatale name I've ever heard. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, it's so great. Or Evelyn Cross or whatever her name, whatever you want to call her. I mean, it's, it's so classic, but she is like this very classic femme fatale really but has a lot of modern sensibilities to her so she's conniving and kind of one step ahead of her male counterpart she obviously has an ulterior motive and and why she's doing what she's doing and um i i think it's kind of everything it, i mean she has like everything you love about a femme fatale but it also has this extra added piece that I think you and I have talked about and what we want from like the original femme fatales in that it it actually does delve into her past and explains like why she is the way she is and explains why she's doing what she's doing and actually helps 
the audience like really empathize with her a lot and and understand like her mindset and what you know what's going through her head and what she's doing and I think she's kind of like this perfect embodiment of a woman who's kind of fallen victim to this like immoral world and she's simply just trying to survive and also protect her daughter slash sister from like having the same thing happen to her so and that and the perfect motif of that I mean is the fact that her eye is flawed like she can't like see the world perfectly because she has this like flawed eye and it's it's super interesting and I think what makes this movie um and and I think something that she says before I get into that when she tells Jake about her like Iris having this like flaw um she calls it a birthmark and it's kind of like she's been you know, it's almost like she didn't have a choice, like, she was born into this life, and, like, she, she's just doing what she can to survive in this, like, flawed, immoral world as a flawed person, like, she's not perfect, but she's trying her best, basically, and, and, um, I think it's a really interesting kind of, like, character addition that they did there, but what makes, I think through her character, what makes this movie so much darker than other endings of film films noir is is how her character ends in that obviously she she dies she gets killed in the end like most of the women in in film noir do and you know they quote unquote like receive their punishment but in 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 this movie it's way more unsatisfying than someone like a Barbara Stanwyck or Jane Greer dying because we actually have sympathy for her like she's not this like totally evil you know woman with yeah. like well and you want her to get away like you want like you as an audience member want her to you know have a different life and and like you know break out of kind of this really seedy existence into something better and like get away from that yeah. so and save like, Catherine too and save Catherine is- from from that the fate that she experienced exactly and then What's like goes even further is that Noah Cross does not die in the end of this movie, which is unlike most films noir in that it wraps up with the bad guy dying um, and the femme fatale dying. But she he doesn't die in the end of this movie. She does. And then while Giddis's reputation is kind of redeemed in the end, he Cross gets away with Catherine. And it's like it leaves this very, very unsettling ending. But it's kind of ambiguous in this way of like. You can read it as like, oh yeah, she that's she's gonna go through the exact same thing that Evelyn went through, or the the line at the end also kind of makes you think like maybe Chinatown will just like work itself out and he will meet his like timely death, but like not through any like legal means, but like the city will just take care of him basically. Yeah, there'll be like karma, <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's really an interesting ending, and I think the image of Evelyn's eye effectively being like blasted out of her head is really symbolic, as like it expresses kind of how the viewer's expectations are essentially like blasted apart too in the ending which is it's really unusual and it shows her kind of disfigure disfigurement at the end and it's like very very unsettling and very like a stark contrast to you know the older movies that we see it kind of it's like a noir on steroids is how this movie ends so it's really fascinating and um kind of before we jump into the fun facts I I want to take a minute to recognize like so this movie is considered kind of a neo-noir film, but I think it's an, I actually think it's more of like a classic film noir, but I think it is kind of like a bookend. If you were to consider, yeah, and I think if you were to consider like the beginning of classic film noir being like the Maltese Falcon, this is definitely like the end of it 
is Chinatown and like everything in between is kind of the classic film noir like era, um, which I think is really, you know, important in understanding that there's nothing more symbolic to that than casting John Huston as Noah Cross because John Huston did in fact direct Maltese Falcon. <laughs> so that was a cool f- full circle, I think, that they did. Um, and I think like, the themes of this movie and why it's so much darker is that it's so much more reactionary to what was going on within the country and the country's, like, political corruption at the time instead of a reaction to the changing world of, like, post-World War II society in that there was this kind of, like, other enemy that was outside of our society. This one is more of, like, the... Mm-hmm. not internal. quite yeah, yeah, not quite, like, the enemy within, but more, like, the um, shedding light on, like, the corruption within our society and how that's, like, effectively kind of ruined the like the ideal of the American dream I mean it's like the whole movie the whole like theme of this movie is that it depicts this corrupted ideal of the American dream as something essentially pretty rotten which I think is like what old film noirs were alluding to but couldn't quite like explicitly state because of the studio system Hayes Code stuff but this is, like, really critiquing the idea of, like, what is the American dream and, like, why are we going to try to achieve that when it's all based on corruption? It's everyone, like, getting ahead is based on, like, the seedy corruption. Um, so, super interesting. That's kind of my analysis. Um, but before we conclude, I have a few fun facts that I would love Ooh, to share. I'm excited. <laughs> Um, so it's nothing super, like, funny, but, uh, so Polanski actually convinced Robert Town to make the ending, so they actually had a huge fight over the ending of this movie, um, I think Polanski actually ended up writing the ending of this movie, they had a huge falling out over how this movie were to end, Town wrote it differently, Polanski didn't like it, Town left the film, like, three days before they were supposed to film the ending, and Polanski had to, like, rewrite the end by himself because he wanted it to be um the way that it is in the movie and then town later admitted that it was like actually better the way Polanski did it so in the original version that town wrote and wanted Evelyn Mulray actually kills Noah Cross when she shoots him and then instead of explaining her reasons for doing show doing so she actually just like goes to prison because she refuses to explain why she did it so that's that's like why that was supposed to be the original ending oh interesting I I don't love that ending it doesn't really no, make sense I think I think that this ending is much stronger and I think that what's interesting too is I I think that why this film I think it is I agree with your kind of analysis that this would be kind of the bookend to the film noir period but I think some people do also consider this a neo-noir I think that what's interesting about this film whether you see that as a bookend or kind of this part of this new neo-noir period is it's actively subverting themes that we have come to accept in film noir in a way that makes it really interesting and unique. And I think if it had followed that formula that you just described, it would have been more aligned to kind of the classic film noir tropes that we've experienced. I think it would have been a little bit different because Evelyn wouldn't have ended up dying, which I think usually the woman does get punished, like that's kind of the trope. Um, But I think if Noah Cross died, um, that would have been punishment in a different way. Um, And and like it would have been a more, in some ways, a more satisfying ending as a viewer. But I think that the way that they ended it instead really does speak to those um, really unsettling themes and just kind of the overall seediness that there isn't 
maybe the fairness or justness that you want in the world. And I think that's the point of this film is that it isn't fair or just. (laughs) Right. I think if they had done the original ending, it actually would have undermined like the entire movie. I agree. And it, it would have left this like weird open endedness of like, what, what are we supposed to do with Catherine? Like the, the Noah's dead, uh, Evelyn's in prison and then we just like kind of have this loose end of her but we don't she's not really a character in the movie that we have come to know so it's not like a it's not like an unsettling loose end like how it does actually end with her getting right. taken away by it, Noah but it's just it's it just like just, unsatisfying yeah, yeah it would just be just weird like, yeah, yeah agree. so I think it would have been strange so I'm glad they did it the way that they did so if you're watching the movie you will notice that uh, John Houston as Noah Cross mispronounces Gittis's name, calling him Mr. Gitz a lot. Yeah. Um, so this actually was not in the script. John Houston just like straight up could not say Gittis. <laughs> and so he kept messing up to the point and they kept having to like redo it, but he kept messing up. And then Jack Nicholson gets so mad at one point that he just added the line correcting him. And then he still kept getting it wrong. So, and Roman Polanski just liked that and just kept it in the movie. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I I think that that's fascinating knowing that that wasn't part of the script because I actually think it does a really good job of kind of furthering the like disconnection between the like haves and have nots of like you're you're basically like disposable to me like I don't even need to know what your name is you know you just are here to kind of like serve me and I'm getting what I want out of this exchange and I have all the control and power. Oh yeah, it's a perfect um it's a perfect like character development thing yeah. for Noah. It's great. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, maybe John Houston was just like secretly doing it to like make the character like better and didn't tell anyone. He's actually or he like, was just, like a little game. bit senile at that point. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> Definitely that. <laughs> Definitely that. Um, so I don't know if you knew this, but I did not know this. There's actually a not so popular sequel to this movie called The Two Jakes. <laughs> Did you know that? I did not know that. No. So it was, um, it was, it's starring Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson actually directed it as well. And it was like soup. It was like a huge flop. And they were gonna, they made it with the idea that they were gonna actually make a trilogy. And the third one was supposed to be called Cloverleaf. But alas, the second one was like a huge flop. And so they did not make the third one. So there is a random sequel to this movie out there called The Two Jakes, and it is starring and directed by Jack Nicholson. So, oh my just, god, uh, incredible! Keep that in mind. <laughs> um, so, uh, super interesting. Jane Fonda was actually supposed to; she almost got the role of Evelyn Mulray. So that would have been like a really interesting film. I don't know if oh, I. Oh, that's fascinating. I don't I, know how I that would have looked. Her doing a good job, but I mean, Faye Dunaway yeah. is just. This is so such an iconic. iconic role for her, and I think that she, I mean, you already said this earlier, but I mean, I think she really gives the, like, she gives you as an audience member what you want in a femme fatale. Like, she has that, that, like, kind of magnetic quality to her, but I think she also just has such an amazing, um, like, backstory and, and, like, depth that she's able to bring this character. And I love Jane Fonda, but I just don't know if she would have been able to deliver that same experience. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, I think Faye Dunaway can play this kind of, like, 
morally ambiguous character really, really well, or someone that's, like, kind of more flawed. Um, Jane Fonda can, too, but in a very, not as, like, in more of, like, an endearing way as opposed to, like, this, like, kind of seedy way. So I think it would have been interesting. They're obviously both at kind of, like, the height of their careers at this point, so it was probably a pretty, pretty, um, public, you know, vying for this role. But Polanski just straight up wanted Faye Dunway, so that was, like, the end of that debate when he was like, nope, Faye Dunway. So, um, yeah, so that's an interesting, I thought that would have been an interesting film. Um, another thing that I'd like to get your thought on that I thought was super fascinating of what you think, like, this would look like, the original script actually had a lot of voiceover from Jack Nicholson in it, and it was, all of it was cut, and nobody really knows why, (laughs) but they, but Polanski, like, cut all of it from the movie. So that's fascinating because I think that is a big feature that we see in film noir is usually that voiceover element from kind of this, you know, protagonist, but also kind of unreliable narrator. Um, So that's fascinating. I mean, I think that this film is stronger for the fact that it doesn't have that. I would have been interested to see what that script looks like because I think that by not having that narration it really does to me kind of mark this new age of noir where there isn't the explanation so much of I don't know the discovery and understanding what's happening in the plot and in this like seedy world is left to the audience and I think that it's a very interesting shift from being told as an audience member how to feel or how to think about things through the lens of a narrator that's really telling you their experience to now you as an audience member are left to kind of navigate this world that's as ambiguous to you as it is to the characters within the film itself. And I think that that's a really unsettling feeling. You're kind of uncovering things along with... um, you know, with Jack Nicholson's character, whereas I think if he had been the narrator, there would have been more explaining, you know? Yeah, and I think it's a really good point that you make because I think um, two things on that is that the movie is not, like, a flashback, which is what the point of, like, a voiceover is, is to, like, explain this, like, flashback stuff that's going on. And also, I think it's really important that you mention that the movie is like you're experiencing everything along with Jake as it's happening the 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 it's it's kind of something that you don't really think about until you watch it but it's kind of one of the not one of the only movies but um it's a movie in which the audience doesn't know anything that the main character doesn't know like the like there are a lot of movies and films noir especially or mysteries that the audience knows something that the main character doesn't know and this is one of the movies where we don't know anything Jake doesn't know. We're experiencing everything with him. And um, it, I think if you had that, like like you said, that explanation or the voiceover, it wouldn't, like, it, it wouldn't really make any sense. Because he's not looking at it as, like, a flashback. It, would, it just would be, it, it would be redundant because it's just the stuff that, w- right, we already know. So I that's probably the reason it got cut, and I'm glad that it did. <laughs> so, yeah. Um... Well, it's kind of, yeah, I know. And that's kind of all I have on Chinatown. I do want to conclude with a little quotey quote from our guy, Roger Ebert. Um, so he did, our, our favorite movie critic, he did give this movie a four stars, saying that Chinatown was seen as a neo-noir when it was released, an update on an old genre. Now years have passed and film history, and as film history blurs a little, it seems to settle easily beside the original noirs, and that is a compliment. 
So that's what he said about the movie, and I think that's a good explanation of it, because it is kind of, and when this movie was made, it was so new Hollywood, so it would have, would have been considered a neo-noir, but as you look at it kind of retro, you know, like retroactively, it's like you can also settle it as this like bookend to film noir, so it's interesting that it blurs the lines of both really well, and I, I, do, I, I would totally recommend this movie. I think it's like it is like on top lists of films. It is a cl- it is like a top classic movie, and I, it is a I I do think that it is a perfect movie. Like it is it is not, not necessarily not enjoyable to watch, but it is like very dark. Um, it, I would say it's an uncomfortable film. This isn't a film that's meant to make you feel at ease. I think the whole point of it is that it's it's supposed to make you feel as gross as what it's depicting, right? Like. Yeah, and I don't think when you're watching original film noir that you feel like super gross because it's far enough removed because they're so old that you can you can enjoy it for the entertainment of its like weird snappy dialogue and and all that stuff. But this movie is like very explicit about how immoral it is and how immoral the world is and how unfair everything in society is and corrupt everything is. So I think it it is an uncomfortable movie, but it's it's executed flawlessly. I think everything about it is perfect, but um, yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think it is interesting because, I mean, it's set in the 30s. So this would have been, in theory, you know, taking place at the same time that these film noirs were, which I think is a really interesting choice. Whereas with other neo noirs that we'll talk about, they're set in, you know, more present day or kind of more recent history, I would say. Um, and I think that what's interesting is this is actively set in the same time period as the noirs that we know and love. But because of the themes that it's dealing with, and I think because it doesn't, it it was not subject to the same type of of codes and, um, you know, they could be a lot more blunt about things that were alluded to in the original noirs, but aren't explicitly addressed, right? So I think it's fascinating. Oh, 100%. Um, And I would recommend it. I would recommend this movie. I think that Um, this to me is like required viewing I, I would agree. put this up there like I think that this is a film to me that I, I think a lot of people could enjoy as well um if you don't necessarily love noirs because they're in black and white or because they feel kind of old I think that this gives you a lot of that um but it's really it's really direct in what it's addressing and I think that your analysis too or kind of your historical context really makes it um a little bit more interesting too to understand that this was kind of an active both you know addressing what had happened in the past but also acknowledging what Los Angeles was built on and that it continued to be a city built kind of on this corruption and of taking from others to build up this kind of illusion of a dream right and I think that that's really fascinating yeah, and I mean, again, that's what it's talking about is like the idea of the American dream is really flawed. And using Los Angeles as a base of that, too, is like a really good way. It's the and perfect really setting. Perfect setting for it. Um, So, yeah, great film noir, the perfect neo noir, however you want to identify this movie. Uh, we both would recommend it. And that's kind of all we have on Chinatown. But... Join us uh, on our next episode as we talk about a true neo-noir, one of the weirdest movies I've probably ever seen, but so good in its own way. Um, What are we watching? Well, we are watching Mulholland Drive next, so can't wait. A a David Lynch classic. 
I know. And the perfect, uh, I would say, wrap up to our second annual November. I know. I love it. So until then, cheers. Cheers.